what we learned is here's really how you build a successful healthcare practice and business that can provide a great service for this community. And you can be a great physician, you can provide great services, but if you don't have a good business, you will go under. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. As a pre-med biomedical engineering major student, Robin focused on the medical route before delving into the business side of business. During his undergraduate years, he worked summers dedicated to working with his father in their oncology clinic, realizing the need to bring high-value care into the community. To make cancer care more accessible for more people, Robin founded Time Care, a company comprised of long-standing leaders in the field of oncology and digital health to create a platform that treats people as the priority and connects provider, payer, and patient every step of cancer treatment journey. In this episode, Robin discusses his journey in the world of oncology from his undergraduate experiences to now, his most recent breakthrough in establishing a new digital healthcare resource for cancer patients. Here's our conversation. Well, Robin, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Christine. It's great to have you. And I always like to start with your journey, your personal journey on what brought you to do something in healthcare. And is there certain person events that inspire you to be in healthcare? Yeah, no, I I always love answering that question. So one thing about me and, and my family is that we've been in the oncology world for really all of our lives. Just to give some background, my father immigrated to the U.S. in early 80s and ended up becoming a practicing community medical oncologist in South Central Pennsylvania and decided to build his own practice there. And fast forward to today, my little brother just completed his oncology fellowship and will be joining my father. My older brother works at One Oncology, an oncology practice management company that my father is now a part of. And this is my third oncology venture, private equity-backed company, TimeCare. So oncology through and through. Now, the true boss is my mom. She's the one who really keeps us all in check. But now there are four of us working in the same space, which makes our dinner room conversations very fascinating. And interestingly, you did not do the route of medicine. Yeah. So, you know, I learned really early in my life that there were so many exciting things to be done in the healthcare space. But one thing about myself is that I needed to be able to do two things. Number one, be able to constantly evolve and change. And the idea of going into the medical school or becoming a physician route, although seemed interesting, to me, it looked as if once you got into that position, your job was the same for the next 40 or 50 years. And that did not excite me. And the second thing was I wanted to make a macro impact versus a micro impact. Not to say that physicians don't have a major impact, but they have a lot of patients in their community and where they operate or work. And I wanted to do something just a little bit more larger scale. I had no idea how to do that, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. And my journey brought me all the way to where I am with time care. Yeah. So tell us, I'm sure that that was an interesting dinner conversation when all your siblings and your dad are physician. 
and for you like I want to be in that field but not as a physician and but walk us to back when you're saying that you don't know how to start to make an impact on a marketer but knowing that being a physician would not allow you to do that like how do you make that transition yeah yeah so I would say it started my father was an ambitious physician. He was one of the physicians out there that also was a business owner. So he started his own practice. And you really don't recognize outside looking in how much the running of an oncology or any medical practice or facility is that of also running a business. And so really early on in my undergraduate time, I started working with my father in his clinic. And I really focus on the business side of it. So I was a pre-med major, biomedical engineer, thinking about the medicine route. But after my first year after college, I spent a summer with him and realized that I wanted to get into the business side of medicine. And so I started spending the summers with him. And then after my junior year of college, I actually went full-time with my father. And a lot of that was around his practice was going through a very unique inflection point. So if you think of the U.S. healthcare market, he had built an oncology practice that was multi-specialty in a community that was very competitive. And again, as a outside looking in, we don't really think of healthcare as competitive. But when you really get into it, it is very competitive. You have hospitals, you have community clinicians, uh, you have health systems, you have large conglomerates. And my dad got caught up in a market where it was very competitive, but he had a vision and wanted to execute against that vision in his community and due to the circumstances needed help from someone to really navigate through that journey. And who else can you trust than your family? Mm -hmm. And so I started to go back during my junior year, senior year of college and get into the weeds with my father of running an oncology practice. What did you learn at that time that you did not know as an outsider? Yeah. So everything from retention of employees to managing a PL to understanding the debt structures to specifically in healthcare, how inventory management and AR work, right? In healthcare, you provide a service today, you don't get paid for a while. And the person that's getting the service is not the one paying for it. And you're selling someone else to pay you for the service that you provided to that person. And in the specific industry of oncology, the average oncologist is buying and billing for nearly five to $7 million of chemotherapy. So these are big businesses and not all physicians are trained to manage a five to seven or 20 to 30 or 50 to $100 million business. And then on top of that, I joined my father's practice during President Obama's first administration. And there was this wave of technology mandate coming out. And so during that transition, I also learned that there were a lot of doctors who didn't understand that transition through the high-tech acts. And so I spent a lot of time understanding how technology can impact the healthcare process and workflows of clinicians and physicians. And I spent four years intensely with my father's practice from 2008 to 2012. And we learned a lot about all of those things that I mentioned. And what we learned is here's really how you build a successful healthcare practice and business that can provide a great service for this community. And you can be a great physician, you can provide great services, but if you don't have a good business, you will go under. And so those are the things that I learned while I spent that four years with my dad. And after that, you make the transition to leave his practice. Yeah. And what prompted you to do that and then pave your career? 
in a way away from your family. Yeah, no, it's actually a really great story. So I, after spending those four years with my father, I learned so much about the technology and the data, primarily because we implemented an electronic health record. And I saw that all of this data was being aggregated, but no one was using it in a meaningful way. And so I sort of told my father, hey, I, I love what we're doing here. And now what you've built is thriving. It's time for me to branch out and to do something more macro. And I wanted to build something specifically in the technology space for oncology practices, given that was my background for the last four years. And through that process, I ran into the two founders of Flatiron Health when they were just incubating Flatiron Health. And so I joined that company really early. And I really think about it as my maturation, right? I learned so much about oncology and the healthcare practice, but I knew nothing about really building a, not only a tech business, but a venture-backed tech business. And so I was very close with the founders during that time, given the company was just getting off the ground. And the next four years, I was with Flutter Health, the next five years, actually. But what was exciting about that is given that we were working in oncology and I had this background, my father and his practice effectively became the first customer for every solution that we launched at Flatiron. And so his footprint continued to continue with me mm -hmm. and his practice got better through what we built around him. And that's sort of how we continue to get into the space. And now I learned the next portion of really how do you build a business that's in this space of venture-backed and a tech company? Mm -hmm. So when Flatiron had this very successful exit, as we all know, right? I mean, what did you learn when you were at Flatiron that has helped you with your next stage? Yeah, I love that question. I would say the biggest thing I learned at Flatiron Health was the people around you are what build great businesses. And one of the biggest things that Flatiron did was recruited some of the best talent out there. And and you can have a great, we have a great mission and, and all of the companies have had a great mission that I've worked with, whether it's my dad's practice to Flatiron to One Oncology to Time Care, but those things are not successful without building really passionate, caring and tight knit team. So I learned that at Flatiron and then obviously all the nuances around how to manage a venture-backed organization and how to work with those leadership teams and how to do OKRs and sort of build solutions around that. Those are things that you learn, but all of that really was because there was an amazing team at Flatiron. And sort of, I think you likely know this, but to fast forward to where we are at TimeCare, I think it's about 14 people, 13 or 14 people from Flatiron actually are at TimeCare. Mm. So we have this really great group of folks, but also we're now over a hundred plus that come from various backgrounds, but this core contingency of folks that work together flat are mm -hmm. sort of in the same mission. Before we talk more deeper about the time care, maybe you can share with us, because you were by the early stage of the flat iron, how does the company grow and also in a way keep the culture, recruit the right people and maintain that kind of culture? Yeah, I would say what I learned from the founders of Flatiron Health is that it's got to be real. You really got to believe in that culture. It starts with the founders and that permeates to the leadership team, to the board, to the investors. This will translate to where we are today, but I truly believe that your investors have to be aligned to your mission and your goals. And when you integrate that into your recruiting process, 
you make sure that you bring like-minded folks. Flatiron Health, as I mentioned, great teams are built by great people teams and great recruiting. And the diligence of recruiting at Flatiron Health, the processes we ran to recruit people translates now to how we are at Time Care. But it was not something that I was familiar with before joining Flatiron Health. The rigor that we put around candidate management and identification and interviewing and team-based hiring was what allowed that company to really bring in the talent it did, but also retain that talent and make sure that the talent really was mission-oriented. How is it? How did they do it? Like you were saying that the diligence. Yeah, the actual how. Yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, everything from detailed planning around job descriptions mm-hmm. to really understand the scope of the role to make sure it's the right role, all the way to hiring committees. And so yeah, I know this is multiple levels deep, but any role that's opened has a hiring manager. That hiring manager screens hundreds of people for that role. That hiring manager presents five or six people that go through an interview process. That person that's interviewed goes through eight interviews internally, very structured interviews based on four different skill sets for evaluating. After that evaluation period, there's then a hiring committee of cross-functional leaders evaluating the feedback on every candidate that was presented and then having a group-based discussion on, is this the right candidate for the role? Then detailed reference checks and sometimes presentations around how they would fit in that role. And what is the four value that you mentioned that is important? Yeah, so the first one is domain expertise. How do they fit within that domain expertise? The second is culture fit. And so the third is horsepower. And the fourth is specific experience within that specific function. And the thing about it is, is we align people to each one of those categories so that they're evaluating for that specific category. And that's what we've sort of taken also forward to time care. And so now you have a playbook written on evaluation periods for each one of these candidates. And you have multiple people within your company evaluating for those specifics. So you have consistency. If you evaluate five candidates, you have the same set of people evaluating the same set of information with the same set of questions, and you can evaluate and look at candidates like. That's great. So you mentioned that you transfer that knowledge and implement that in time care and having a lot of people from Flatiron, at least everybody's on the same mindset and that this is going to work. And tell me more about the time care. Like why, what's the genesis and why I know it's an oncology and because you spend a lot of time in oncology and your family's in oncology, but why there's a need for the work that you do at Time Care. One thing before I get into that is to bring those practices over to Time Care. We hired the first head of people from Flatiron Health and she joined us when the company started. So we invested in the people function very early on. We have an amazing people team all the way from our head of people to our recruiting team, to our onboarding team. There are one area that I always advise early entrepreneurs to invest in is your people team is so critical to success. It's interesting because oftentimes, at least in many major company, the view of the people is always like the HR and everybody always have funny joke about HR, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's why we don't call it HR anymore. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because at one time we had an FBI came talking about IP theft. And one thing that the FBI was telling us is that make sure that you have a great, I mean, they call it HR team. And because oftentimes 
especially technical founder, because, you know, maybe they were in a university, they look at HR differently. And sometimes they don't think of HR as part of their partner. That's so important. Yeah, we, again, a lot of learnings from Flatiron Health, but that people function, the people make the company Mm -hmm. a big area of investment. Yeah. And so time care, why we started this company about three years ago was to solve one critical problem. A lot of us have been in oncology for a long time. We've seen successful startups that have gone to successful exits. And one of the things that we realized is that there was a lot of people working on business to business solutions in the oncology space, solving for things around the cancer patient, but no one was really focusing on the cancer patient themselves. And from all of us working in the space for so long, and specifically my co-founder, Bobby Green, who's a medical oncologist by training and still sees patients on a routine basis, we get phone calls every single week, every other week from people all across the country saying, hey, Robin, hey, Bobby, or hey, someone else at the time care team, me or my friend or my colleague has been diagnosed with cancer or have been told we might have cancer and we have no idea what to do. We're getting the runaround from our physicians. We have to get this test and we have to get this screening, but no one's telling us what all of this means and there's no one to talk to. And so we become navigators. This happens on a routine basis, actually, where Bobby and I now are at a point where we call each other. And when we get a phone call, we call each other and say, hey, this person called me, let's help them. Let's figure it out. And what we're really trying to get people to is comfort. Mm. So vulnerable at this period of time. And the cancer diagnosis is very complicated. It's very hard to take in. But the science has advanced so much that in many cases, you're going to be fine. But during that period of time where no one's telling you what's going on, or they can't tell you, uh, and or you've, you know, for example, got a pathology report, you were told you might have cancer, and now you're two weeks and no one's responded on a test that takes 24 hours. And so that's where we intermediate there. We are trying to get to people immediately so they have answers right away. That was the genesis of the company. I got a call in late 2019, a good friend from high school's mother who ended up actually passing this year, but had late stage pancreatic cancer and got this runaround and was told that it was a four week wait to get in just to get her diagnosis. And within 72 hours, we were able to get her a PET scan to get the confirmed diagnosis, meet an oncologist and start her treatment. And we don't know what would have happened if she would have waited four to five weeks to get just the diagnosis. She got a good three years after identifying what was going on. And that was important for her. After that case, I called Bobby and I called a bunch of other former colleagues and I said, we've got to solve for this problem. And that was the first snowflake mm-hmm. at the start of time care. That phone call permeated to a bunch of people that we had worked together with And we all came together and said, we get the same phone calls. Let's build something in this space together. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group, Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com.
why is that fail for the first, like, you know, why our healthcare system doesn't have that? And I mean, it's great that Danker is addressing that, but I'm just like, what happened? I would assume that when you have cancer, you see a primary care doc and then the primary care doc is supposed to take care of a lot of the navigating in a way. Yeah. So a couple things. Number one, primary care physicians are amazing. They are asked and tasked to do so much. They're not experts in a cancer diagnosis. And so what they're really trying to do is get you to the right place. But there's a bunch of different paths that you can take. You can go directly to surgery. You can go directly to pathology. You can go directly to radiology. Or you can go directly to oncology. And depending on the case, any one of those directions can take a bunch of time. So for example, maybe you go to radiology first. Well, going to radiology, I don't know if you've gotten an image recently of anything. I myself, it takes me weeks to get into the radiologist. And I know the system and I know every doctor in this county and I can't get in for a radiology exam. And so like that navigation itself, of just being able to call a radiology center and say, we need to expedite this. Well, you know, there's prior authorization. There's all this work that needs to get done. And that causes these delays. I've owned a radiology center with my father. I know that the image gets read within 24 hours. That is just the standard now. Why is it that when you get a radiology image that it may take a week to actually know what happens? Well, because there's a scheduling process and a PCP, they see 30 patients a day. They have a big panel. I think the average primary care physician sees 2,000 patients a year, 2,000 unique patients a year. That's a lot of unique patients that they're managing. And so that's the sort of first break point is that there's just so much going on and there's all the past. And then once you add another party, pathology or radiology or surgery, you now have to wait for their processes. And they also have this huge panel of patients. And so really what we think about is, hey, we know how all these systems work. We can get in the front of the line of all this because we understand the right questions to ask. We know who to get to. We can get that information back to the right person. And in many cases, patients don't have cancer and that's fine. But that peace of mind that I don't have cancer is really important to them. But if they do have cancer and you streamline six weeks to 48 hours, mm-hmm. you can make a huge impact on someone's life. And then the last thing I'll mention is access. There is a bit of a gap in the marketplace and understanding of how oncology care is delivered in the US. And the common person thinks that the only place you really can get treatment is at the academic centers. But I think today about 65% of every cancer case is seen in a community practice. And so going back to that case from 2019 of my friend's mother, it was a four week wait to get into Johns Hopkins to get the testing and the exam needed. But there was a clinic two minutes from her house and she didn't know that, right? She didn't understand that. And so if you really understand the access and the availability with a cancer diagnosis or anything near there, if you call your local provider who's in the community, like my father's practice, they're very customer service oriented and they will see you immediately and they will streamline it if you call and ask the right questions. And that's sort of why it creates this opportunity for time care or companies alike. I mean, I wish that we didn't exist because if this wasn't a problem, then it would be a great streamlined process for everyone. You've probably seen this through your podcast and work of the space. For a lot of these chronic conditions, 
this is what happens because getting to the diagnosis is so complicated and there's so many different players. And every time you add another provider, it adds multiples of complexity. So that's number one on time care. The second thing relative to the system is once you actually have that confirmed diagnosis, there's all of these things that happen to you when you're getting treated that are not monitored. And it's really a function of our payment system. Right? In the US today, it's fee for service for the most part. And so you get paid based on the codes you bill. And that means is if there's not a code, then there's not a service. But in the cancer diagnosis, there's a lot of things that happen outside the four walls of a clinic. There's a code if you end up in the ER mm -hmm. and there's a payment for that. But there's no code if you prevent an ER or prevent a hospitalization. And so that's a big area where we're focused as a company. And how do you do that? We have, number one, identified that in the cancer population, there is a large need, spend, and problem with members or cancer patients ending up in the hospital, getting admitted based on their chemotherapy and their disease. And that causes not only a really bad experience for those people, it's really expensive and a lot of it is avoidable. And so we've designed a bunch of software as well as people process protocols, scientifically designed pathways to proactively manage patients through their cancer journey. So the example of that would be, we have built software that will say, hey, this person is getting a treatment based on their diagnosis on Thursday afternoon. We should reach out to that member four hours after their treatment and check in on them. And we should check in on them with these questions. And if they answer any one of these questions in this branch, that means that they may end up in the hospital if there is an intervention. And then we start to do interventions. So we, we are proactively trying to trigger when something may happen and then get ahead of it. And maybe over a medication or maybe a additional visit at their oncology practice the next day to get hydration will avoid that hospitalization. And the way we see that is we see it through population-based data. We can look at the entire population and we can say, there's two metrics within the space that we look at. One's called ADK, admissions per thousand. And the second one is BDK, bed days per thousand. And so we can look at those measures for the populations we manage and say, are our proactive symptom management interventions working at reducing this across the entire population? And to date, we've seen those two metrics go downwards, which is a really positive sign for this population. You mentioned earlier that when there's a fee, because it's a fee for service, then if you don't have, there's no fee, there's no service. And so now you create this uh, preventive that oftentimes has no fee. How does it work with TimeCare and for the people to benefit that? Yeah, so our approach at TimeCare is what we've seen. The work we're doing has actually been studied academically for the last 10 plus years. And it is proven through the data in these pockets and academic centers that it improves patient experience, it improves outcomes, and relevant to the payment structure, it reduces the cost of care. And so that's our model. We go to entities that take risk on behalf of a population. So that's commercial health plans, that's Medicare Advantage health plans, 
that's at-risk primary care groups that have delegated risk from the Medicare Advantage plans. Uh, and then there are some oncology practices that are taking risk on behalf of Medicare beneficiaries. And we go to those organizations and we say, hey, our data shows that if we apply our intervention to your population, the cost of care for this population will go down. And we put our money where our mouth is. We say, for the 2,000 people that you have that might fit within this definition of cancer and actively treated, those 2,000 people are going to cost you roughly $200 million per year. That's an actual number for the cost for this population. We think we'll reduce the spend by $10 million or $15 million. If we're able to accomplish that, we want you to pay us some of that savings. If we don't accomplish that, don't pay us anything. That's our model. So right now, your program cover in is, where is it being covered? Is like anybody in the whole country? Yeah, great question. So we're currently partnered with multiple risk-bearing entities. So Medicare Advantage, commercial, at-risk primary care, and Medicare oncology practices that take risk on behalf of Medicare. So we hit all four of the segments. We're adding a fifth segment right now, which is on the employer side. We're currently available in roughly 22 states, and we're expanding much more in 2024. The thing that I'll call out is that we are available specifically to the health plans or risk-bearing entities that contract with us. So we're contracted with nearly 500,000 people across the U.S. today. We're expanding rapidly, and it's really dependent on those partnerships with those risk-bearing entities. And we've got a great team that are out there talking to all of the entities out there that cover the U.S. population. So that's sort of how we think about the model. We currently don't have a direct-to-consumer model. Uh, not to say we won't in the future, but it's something we don't have available today. I know we are running out of time, but I just want to shift gear a little bit. Thanks for sharing a lot of what you guys do at Timecare. Now going back to you as a person, I want to ask a quick couple question. What's the best advice that you heard that were given to you? Actually, this is the best advice. It was from a former Flatiron colleague who has recently started his own company around the same time. And he was my boss at the time. And so this is for people that are in the building stage. So it's relevant to me is that the decision made in the past doesn't matter for the decision that you need for the future. And what he meant by that was, even if you said, hey, I think we should have done this three months ago, don't do that because you said it three months ago because you have new information today and make your decision on what you want to do tomorrow based on the information you have at that moment. And it was actually a very unique mental shift for me because I think a lot of people get caught up in, well, that's kind of how I did it before, or that's how they did it before. But that was, kinda, I know I said this was the decision that we were going to make. And so let's just do that. That may not be right for the business. That may not be right for the customer or the client or the patient. And so make decisions with the information you have in front of you, not the information from the past. If you're, it's almost give your opportunity to change your mind based on the new data, rather than just saying that, well, you said that, that means you have to keep your promise, but then information has changed. Okay, my next question, 
What is the worst advice that you ever received? I'm going to make this a people-oriented one. I think the worst advice that, and it's over a direction set of advice, is that people should operate within the role that they want where they want it. And so if someone is no longer passionate about the team that they're on or the company that they're at, enable them to be what they're best at. Forcing people to stay within their role, within a specific team or within a company, usually never works. And so in one of the pieces of advice I got was keep people within your team, fight for it. And I actually think that was the wrong piece of advice. If someone really is passionate about doing something different, guide them to help them do that because that's where they'll be most successful. They're not going to be successful if you force them into being in your company or being in your team because that's not what they want to do. And my last question, what are you working on right now that you're learning something new that is challenging and outside your comfort zone? Well, I have a two and a half year old. So I'm learning a lot every single day. They keep you grounded. <laughs> that keeps me very grounded. Now it's not outside my comfort zone. I love every day of it. I learn so much every day, but I don't know if that's what you're asking me. I would say in the professional setting, the one thing that I am very focused on is we're in the next phase of growth. You know, we've surpassed a hundred people and we're now on the 100 to 1000 path. And it is not something that I've ever done as a leader or a CEO. And I'm very excited about this learning curve. The thing that I'm focused on in trying to make sure I'm successful in this path is really partnering with my people team and my team. And I am very open to feedback from anybody. Uh, and you have to be because you need to be able to learn from others as you go through this process. And going from 100 to 1,000 is going to be a very exciting but challenging course. Do you have any advice on people on how to receive feedback? I'll sort of talk about this one in a couple of ways. You should feel comfortable receiving feedback from every direction. From my position, from your board of directors and your investors to your leadership team, four levels below. And no matter how frustrating feedback can be, or maybe you don't even agree, if you don't listen to the feedback, you won't have people that will follow you or participate or be a part of what you want to build. And sometimes it takes months to recognize what that feedback actually meant. Because not everyone can translate the feedback to something that's relevant to you at that moment in time. But I have found myself where I've been given feedback and I receive it very well and I listen to it. I don't comment immediately. I listen. And it took me two, three months to think, oh, this is what they said, but this is what they meant. Now I get it. Now I can evolve, adapt, and become better. That's probably the best guidance I can give around receiving feedback. I think what you're saying is listen to it and go home, think about it, and um, keep observing on what you do. And always remember what the feedback was. And that that's when you connect the dots, like, aha, this is what it is. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you for sharing that advice. And thank you for spending the time and sharing with us your story. That was really amazing. It's great, Christine. Thank you for having me. And we are very excited about what we're building here at Time Care. And 
think that there is a new wave of offerings and technology and, and services that are coming to healthcare that we're very pumped about a lot of the work that you guys are doing, but also everyone else out there to get the word out there about this. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for all your work. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.